Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. The stereotype goes usually that there are character actors and stars. A character actor can show up in a couple scenes, maybe only for five minutes, and even in that small moment, they could make a film. I guess Tony Shalhoub can do that. Well, a star, of course, you build a whole movie or a TV show around. They're relatable, charming, vulnerable. But my guess Tony Shalhoub can do that, too. He's a veteran of both the big and small screens. He's had unforgettable parts in movies like Barton Fink, Men in Black, Quick Change. He's starred in movies like Big Night and TV shows like Wings and, of course, the hit detective series Monk. These days, he's a regular on the Amazon show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It's a dramedy set in the late 1950s. Rachel Brosnahan plays the title character, Midge Maisel. When the series starts out, Midge is a housewife living in Manhattan who puts her old life behind her to take up stand-up comedy. She leaves her husband, takes her kids, and moves back in with her parents. And in fits and starts, her stand-up career takes off. My guest Tony Shalhoub plays Abe Weissman, Midge's dad, a role that's gotten Tony a handful of awards, including an Emmy last year. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel just dropped its third season this past month, but when Tony and I talked last year, the show's second season had just launched. In it, Midge is still living with her family. Her mother, Rose, has moved out of the apartment. She fled to Paris. And at first, that hadn't really sunk in for Abe. After all, Rose has a big party coming up back home. But in this scene we're about to hear, it finally actually dawns on him. Papa, are you kidding me? What? Mama moved to Paris. What? Oh, that's ridiculous. Did you hear what you just said? What? You just told me that Mama told you she was moving to Paris. I never said that. I don't feel like I have a life here. Everyone and everything that I have ever counted on has let me down. And you said, okay. No, I said lamb was okay. And it was. Oh, good grief. Honestly, Papa, you don't listen. Not true. You don't listen to anyone. Not true. I don't feel like I have a life here. Stop repeating that. All right, I'll admit that sometimes I tune people out, but mostly because they rarely have anything useful or interesting to say. It's empty. What? Her closet's empty. Her drawers are empty. Her perfume's gone. Where's her things? Where did they go? I'm guessing Paris. What was she going to wear to the party tonight? You didn't notice this? You sleep right there. You live here, too. You didn't notice either. You're her husband. You're in her closet way more than I am. Tony Shalhoub, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. I saw you wince at your character saying he doesn't listen to other people, mostly because they don't have anything interesting to say. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds a little arrogant, I suppose. (laughs) I mean, one of the funny things about your character on the show is, I think... The show is not about your character. Your character is a secondary character on the show, a supporting character on the show, right? Yes. And in a lot of shows like this, especially funny ones, which this show is very funny, it would be fine to let the protagonist have the journey, right? Like the protagonist gets to go on a journey. Everybody else has a funny thing about them that the audience recognizes. Yeah, and we support that protagonist's, you know, arc, I suppose. And your character has changed a lot in two seasons of the show. Yeah, it's a very, it's rare uh, for 
for series for a character in series television really um because as you say normally you're you know you get hired and then you're kind of you're somewhat limited as to what you're you know being called on to to do and what purpose you serve and, and for actors that can be frustrating at times because you you're the guy that does this or you're the sort of stupid guy or you're the you know the lothario or whatever it is and you get kind of confined or you know kind of constrained into playing two colors three if you're very lucky and uh i've been fortunate in in this case particularly that you know they're they're just uh my my character happens to be in a in a place in his life where he's in he's in transition like and i think it's because of of the transition that midge is in that you know that my daughter is going through all her changes are impacting all of the people around her and we're not just we're not just stuck in our uh, in our little mode i was watching the first episode of the second season uh, earlier today uh, where <coughs> you and your daughter travel to paris and you're wearing an overcoat a brown overcoat with a blue check that um, if they had just showed me that overcoat, I'd be like, yeah, okay. How many years is the contract for? Like, yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I get to wear that overcoat? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> yeah. 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 That And that, that speaks to this whole idea that, that uh, you know, this, I, I like, I love uh, this idea that we're, you know, we're in the fifth, late fifties. I, I uh, I just it's I guess the 40s and the 50s have always been a really good those good decades for me in terms of playing characters, and especially today because I think we all need, as viewers and as certainly as actors, a respite from present day uh, craziness. And what this the other thing that this affords us is this uh, you know there are no cell phones in this show. There are no computers. I mean, the computers are the size of this room. You know, there's no... Uh, there, th- th- we're low-tech. We're super low-tech. And uh, I just find that so refreshing. You were the star of Monk for many seasons. This won't be news to you, Tony. <laughs> I said it as though I might It be. sounds familiar. Yeah. W- which was a detective procedural on USA comic detective procedural in which your character was the brilliant genius detective who in part his genius detecting was colored by his obsessive compulsiveness. And I really think it is one of the best of this kind of show that has ever been made. It it is so hard to make a show like this that is pleasant to so many people that also is sharp and specific and so on and so forth. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like it sort of defined what the USA Network even to some extent still is today. But like it's about an incredible specificity and especially in your performance. Thank you. And I wonder what it was when it came to you and how it came to you. Um. The pilot had been, it was first at ABC for a number of years, and 
was kind of languishing there. The, you know, the, with a lot of these things, you know, you it all has to kind of fit together. You have to have the right person and the right at the right time, and um, you know, uh, th- that script was just was just not getting any traction. And then I think an executive uh, was departing ABC and going over to USA and uh, asked to take this property and see if they could develop it. And that was uh, fine. And then, and then I believe it was at ABC. I mean, I'm sorry. I believe it was at USA for a year, you know, before it came to me. You know, a number of people had, they had approached a number of different actors at both networks. Some actors had approached them and it just, it just never worked. I even think Michael Richards, I heard, was circling it for a while or they were circling him. And um, I, you know, I just, it was just fortunate my uh, manager at the time was reading the pilot for uh, another client of hers. It was, she was actually reading it for uh, the character of Sharona, the assistant. And then while she was reading it, she thought of me and so sent it to me. And uh, I had never heard of it. I didn't know anything about it. And then I met with the network and the writers and um, then we were off to the races. And we had to, you know, I was the first one attached. So they asked me, I, I, I mentioned that I would like to be involved as a producer too, so I could have some input and a voice. And so they asked me to read with people, you know, audition. we were auditioning people for Sharona and Stottlemyre and all the other you know, regulars, <clears throat> in which I was happy to do. And uh, that's how we put it all together. What did you think about it when you first saw it? Well, <clears throat> when I first read it, I didn't really respond to it because I didn't I thought it was good, but I didn't see my way into it. And I called my manager and I said that. I said, "Look, I I get, I get what you're I don't I don't get how how is this me?" And she said <laughs> very subtle. <laughs> she said, you better read it. I think you should read it again because this is more you than you probably want to admit. And so I did, and I read it a second time, and um, and then it started to become clear. <laughs> and um, you know, and the, the truth is, the, the the script that I read, the pilot script, as I remember, now this is a long time ago, okay. But the script that I read was, um, it wasn't really the pilot that we it wasn't exactly the pilot we shot. It was written more, um, it was broader. It was written, I think it originally was conceived more almost like, almost like an Inspector Clouseau-ish thing, except with OCD. It was broader comedy, you know? And uh, that was the part that I felt was, was, was not a good fit for me. And uh, I spoke to my manager about this, and and then she said, "Well, you should sit, just sit down. You can sit down with the writers and express this, and you know, tell them what it is about it that it works for you, and how you would like to have them change it, and maybe they will." And uh, and that's exactly what I did, and they were fantastic. They were open, and uh, and I said, "Look, I I I love comedy, but I think we should, you know." maybe tone down the really, really broad stuff and let the comedy come out of the guy's pain and out of the guy's problem. And uh, but, and also, you have to remember, 
we're talking about a time when we did this is right after 9-11, not, not long after 9-11. So culturally, I think we entered a new level. Uh, we were entering a, an age of anxiety, of higher anxiety, which this character, I don't, I mean, you know, I, certainly the show, the script and the, and the idea was conceived before 9-11, as I said, it laid around for years, but... <laughs> When it came down, came time to actually put it on, do it and put it on the air, people were, you know, I think feeling they were, we're, we're all in a bit of a state of, uh-oh, what now? And, you know, how, how fragile is it all? And so we enter, we kind of enter uh, the, the, the mindset of this character, how he's been living his entire life, really until he met his wife and got better and then she died and then he got worse. So, but then we were entering also at the same time, we were, we knew that we were on a slippery slope because we're dealing with OCD, which is a very real and tragic kind of debilitating disorder. And so you don't want to send that up too much. You want to honor the people who have it. So we had to, you know, we, we, we just were kind of like, holding our breath that it was going to be received by that, by those people or by, you know, that community uh, in the right way and um, do it in a, do it in a way that uh, we wanted, what we were trying to do really was to sort of destigmatize the disorder and um, because the character had so many good qualities and was so talented in so many ways and could make all these gigantic contributions to society um, you know, but it, but maybe just getting out the door, taking fifteen minutes was would be funny, <laughs> you know. But we did. We I think we, the writers did a really good job, and and also the whole creative team because, you know, in capturing the tone, um, we found that sweet spot, and we got a lot of very positive feedback from people who suffered from the disorder or people who had family members who did or even doctors I get letters from psychiatrists and psychologists and people say you know I've referenced your uh, your show in our book in my book that I'm writing about you know mental illness oh my god it was it went way beyond what we intended yeah, I mean, I think that the challenge, the fact that the, the challenge that the character faces is what leads to the resolution and that the the challenge and the pain inherent in the challenge is real makes the hopefulness of it, you know, which is fundamental to this kind of TV is that like part of what you're offering is that the problem will be resolved. So it's yeah. comforting in that way. Yeah. And so the fact that you know that you will get that comfort, but that you will get it from something that actually feels like it might mirror pain that you might have or fear mm. that you might have. Exactly. Um, because we all, I think we all do, many, many people do to a degree. You know, we have these kinds of uh, obsessive, compulsive tendencies. Uh, but, but uh, or, or, or we just get fixated on things or, uh, we, but many of us have ways of dealing with it and coping with it and filtering it so that it's not as obvious to the rest of the world and we don't voice or, or demonstrate these kinds of things where Monk doesn't have that filter. He just says it and does it and feels it and 
and demonstrates it. Let's hear a scene from Monk and my guest, Tony Shalhoub. So in this episode, this is from the seventh season of the show. Wow. Um, Monk's personal assistant, Natalie, helps a thief steal the bicycle, accidentally helps a thief steal the bicycle of a biotech CEO. And so in this clip, Monk and Natalie are getting a tour of the biotech company from one of the lab assistants who's played by a past guest of this show, brilliant actress Pamela Adlin. Oh, love her. Dean? Dean Barry founded Beta Vegetech five years ago. So what exactly do you do? We're saving the world. Oh, good for you. I was getting a little worried about the world. Is that a square tomato? Yes, it is. It's a pet project of Dean's. The square shape means that farmers can pack 35% more tomatoes per carton. It's cheaper, more efficient. So, so that means every slice is exactly the same size? How does it taste? Who cares? It's a square tomato. You're doing the Lord's work. Literally. Dean, uh, Mr. Barry, I just wanted to say I'm sorry about the bite. We're testing new corn seed. They're genetically engineered to sprout in 20 minutes. More or less. What you're seeing is going to revolutionize the agriculture industry as you know it. Congratulations on the square tomato. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. I love Pam. Um, God, I'd forgotten the square tomato. That was. It is a. It's a great line when he says, "I've been feeling a little worried about the world." Or whatever it is that he says there. <laughs> Even more from the great Tony Shalhoub. When we come back from a quick break, still to come, he'll tell me where and why he gets the drive to make art. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org. And NPR. The world is complicated, but knowing the past can help us understand it so much better. That's where we come in. I'm Randa Abdel Fattah. I'm Ramtin Arablouei, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast. Every week, we'll dig into forgotten stories from the moments that shaped our world. Throughline from NPR. Listen and subscribe now. Nearly two decades ago, Commander Data sacrificed. His life. The greatest discovery is also about Star Trek Picard. Jesse Thorne won't let us stay on the network unless we do all the Star Trek series, and so here we are, doing a show about maybe our favorite Star Trek character of all time. If you're excited to watch the new Star Trek Picard series and you'd like some veteran Star Trek podcasters to watch it along with, we're your guys. Sorry you're stuck with us. The hell are you doing out here, Picard? Saving the galaxy. So subscribe to The Greatest Discovery. You can find it anywhere you find podcasts. Or at MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is actor Tony Shalhoub. He is, of course, an incredibly talented actor. He's been in films like Big Night, The Man Who Wasn't There, Spy Kids, just to name a handful. He's currently in the cast of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You can stream that show's third season now on Amazon. He and I talked last year. I want to play a clip from a movie that you were in. It was a, a much earlier in your career that Uh-oh. I no no this is I love this is one of my favorite movies. Um, it's a movie called Quick Change from 1990, and um, it's a it's a really it's a really wonderful movie, all told. Um, I think maybe one of if not Bill Murray's best maybe Rushmore, but maybe besides Rushmore, Bill Murray's best movie that he ever did, and he co-directed it, and yeah. it was a really great movie. 
you played a character in this movie that could have been so awful. Um, you played, uh, you're Lebanese American and your character is basically ethnic cab driver. Um, he speaks in nonsense words. Yeah, in, uh, they didn't want it to be an identifiable ethnicity. So Yeah, like it's a, it's a very surreal. I mean, like partly the tone of the film saves it from being the awful thing it could have been. Mm-hmm. But I think largely it's saved from the awful thing it could have been by a really wonderful performance by you. Uh, both really funny and like uh, human and humane in a way that it didn't necessarily have to be. Um for a cab driver character in a comedy in 1990, um, when those those characters often were just uh, you know broad ethnic jokes. Yeah, um, stereotypical. Yeah. Yeah. So I w- I want to play a clip from it. I don't know how this plays uh, in audio because you're mostly uh, you're mostly quiet. Because I'm making big I'm making big faces. Yeah. Okay. Um, you but, gotta see the shameless faces I'm making. Yeah. So Bill Murray is a bank robber. He dresses as a clown, robs a bank with, um, with Gina Davis. With uh, Gina Davis uh, and uh, his best friend Randy Quaid. Um, and then they all get into a taxi cab and they're having a hard time telling what you they're they're trying to get away. They're they're having a hard time telling what you're saying. They're, they're trying to get to the airport. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He's got it. Oh, great. And why don't you take us straight to Sing Sing? Please don't say that. You're gonna upset Lewis. Oh God forbid. Huh? It's red! Stop! Stop! You don't even understand colors, do you? You don't know red from hell. Red from hell? There's a real cabot. Stop! Taxi! Oh, yes! Randy Quaid freaks out so much that I think he jumps out the passenger door. You, this was probably a part in your a part of your career where if you get a multiple scene part in a movie, it's my first movie, really. Yeah, you're you're not in a position to question it. Um, but did you think about it at the time? Like, how many movies have a, you know, a broad, a broadly unidentifiable Middle Eastern guy who yells things as a taxi driver? It, no, it didn't. Uh, I was so. I, first of all, I love the script, and I really think it is a great movie, an underrated movie. I think it's like a legit great movie. In, like, I think d- even leaving aside its rating, which I think is under. Yeah, I think it's a, a great. Movie. It's it's a very very clever movie. Um, the premise itself is 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 brilliant, and it's you know it's it reflects New York City in the eighties uh, very beautifully and uh, in a, in a really genuinely funny way. And um, but no, I love the idea, and I I love the idea that when I read the script, when it came to my part, it, there were no lines. It just said the cabbie speaks, and we don't understand. And so when but I had to audition for it. So I went in and met the casting, and, the, and Bill was there, Bill Murray was there. And uh, I had to, you know, pe- it was basically a gibberish language. <clears throat> but instead of just, you know, like mumbling and blah, 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 I actually wrote it, I wrote out my lines. I just made up a gibberish language so that I could, so that I would have repeated words or repeated sounds for you know, what I was supposed to be talking about. You're like, I'm going to Tolkien this thing. Yeah, I just, I just look, this is the only way I'm going to do it and not just look like I'm blathering and mumbling and 
because the cabbie knows what he's saying. <laughs> the cabbie's a real guy. <laughs> I mean, and I th- uh, it was my first, and it was. I got to tell you this too. It's my first m- movie, I think. And I had auditioned for things. I was doing mostly theater, but <clears throat> I had auditioned for a lot of things. And it's the first time, and maybe the only time, where I was offered, you know, was offered the job in the room. That never happens. You know, they take thank you very much. You go away. You wait a few days. Your agent calls you. Yeah, you have a callback. Yeah, you have a you have the offer. They want to give you the part. That's how it goes. But this was, you know, I did actually have a callback for this, maybe two. And uh, finally, on the whatever the final callback was, Bill Murphy says, "You want to do this? Because we're good. Let's do it." And uh, we had a blast. We shot it all. Most of it was night shoots and in Queens. And uh, I got to work with Jason Robards, who was a, a god to me, an inspiration when I was younger. And um, a lot of people in the Stanley Tucci's in this movie, a lot of great people in this movie. And um, But it was it. I, I made up my own language. Did you ever watch the movie A Thousand Clowns with Jason Robards? Only about 50 times. It's yeah. the reason I became an actor. And that was that was that was, that was at a time when I was in high school when, you know, you couldn't. We didn't have, you know, VHS and there wasn't any of that. When you saw a movie, you waited a year. You know, it was on TV. You waited another year for it to come around on TV again, maybe. And I was devoted to that film. And uh, I, it was it was it was a it really moved the needle for me. Now, when you say a thousand clowns made you want to become an actor. I knew it's a movie about Jason Robards plays a Single moderately guy. unsuccessful comedy writer who needs to get a job because he's responsible for taking care of his teenage son. No, he's his it's teenage actually, uh, uh, nephew. It's his sister's. Kid. Yeah, um, his sister left. Yeah. yeah, and so he is basically facing this choice in his life, which is he has the opportunity to get a job on something that does not meet his artistic standards, um, which, you know, are difficult to pin down maybe because he's a comedy guy, you know? (laughs) And he is struggling to accept the responsibilities of adulthood. It's, he knows that he has to, and he knows how important it is because there's this kid and he's falling in love as well. And it is very, very painful for him and difficult for him to be frank with himself about that and do what he has to do. Compromise. Yeah. yeah. And I know a ton of comedy people who love this movie. I've had many a conversation with longtime Conan, now Colbert, late show writer Brian Stack about it, for example. Oh. A real funny guy. And I think for a lot of comedy people... It is a deeply difficult film to watch because it asks them to confront their own complicity (laughs) in the kind of irresponsibility of creating art, especially completely frivolous art, Mm. with their life. So you saying that it makes you you want to become an artist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, it's a movie about the horrors and pains that come from the self-centeredness of wanting to be an artist. Exactly. Yeah. That's how sick I am. (laughs) (laughs) 
Where did you Where did you first see it? Did you first see it on TV? Yeah, I I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I was I think it was in high school when I first saw it, and uh, I just remember being so struck by it and those performances and and just the whole message behind it, the whole idea about it behind it. You know, in a sense, you know that that's always that's always uh, the dilemma of the creative person. I think you know this. Uh, it's it's what Big Night was about, and you know that that sort of balancing act that you have to uh, that you have to deal with between art and commerce. It's that's you know one one or can rarely exist without the other. And uh, it, it's it's a it's a ongoing challenge. Yeah, I mean, not even just art and commerce, but also the the solipsism and self regard that's required to think, oh, I could make things, and that could be my whole life. <laughs> like, you know, the amount that you have to dedicate yourself to being an artist to be an artist. Mm-hmm. You know, and the kind of presumptiveness of that and the tension that that creates with your responsibilities to others, to your community, to and that's, I think, why I whenever I watch A Thousand Clouds, I cry like just like a river. But I think it's 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 even beyond that, because what you're talking about is it it implies a, a, a choice, a decision kind of an intellectual decision. And and from my, my experience, and, you know, the reality is, is that that's certainly that's there. But, you know, the part, part of the thing about creativity and, and the pursuit of art uh, is, you know, there's a compulsion there too. You know, people can't help it. They, they have to do it. They, I mean, real, you know, the, the really great people, the good people, uh, and even the maybe not so good people who just have the compulsion. I'm not sure, but there's a thing where it's 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 less of a it's less of an intellectual decision. It's just I need to do something. I I need to create this. I need to do it. And if that's there, you're screwed, because then you you know then you can't stop. And if you do stop, then you're just setting yourself up for a life of a different kind of torture. Well, Tony, we're out of time. I didn't even ask. I mean, you got Damn. nine brothers I, and sisters. I, I didn't even I, mention I, it this whole time. I've just gotten started. Normally, that would have been the whole hour. Um, I'm very grateful to you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. Uh, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you. Tony Shaloub from last year. All three seasons of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel are streaming on Amazon Prime right now. This probably goes without saying, but pretty much all of the movies we talked about in this interview are great. Uh Quick Change, classic. A Thousand Clowns, better than classic. Big Night, exceptional. Watch them all if you haven't seen them already. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, uh, where the birds have discovered the barge, the uh, raft that kind of floats around the lake. I think it was once a, a, a boat landing. Anyway, they've covered it in what birds cover things in. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien and his giant electric piano. 
Our production fellows are Jordan Cowling and Melissa Duenas. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And one last thing, we have done many interviews in our shows nearly two decades, starting with the time that my friend Jordan went to dickdale.net on the web and called the king of the surf guitar at his trailer in the desert. All of those interviews are available on our website at MaximumFun.org. If you're a big fan of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, we talked with Amy Sherman Palladino, the show's creator. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show there, and I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.